0: surpass, penetrating and perfect dharma right. is rarely met with, even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words.
1: One last round. <laughs> this very <way> my uh, <laughs> self is Buddha. So I think you all now have some... some some sense of um, uh, what Dogen might be talking about some some practice methods and a big uh, Dharma toolbox of so many practices we can do within this one simple Zen practice and and uh, And I think it's, you know, we talk about Buddha a lot, right? we take refuge in Buddha. And uh, now we have a, this is a new sort of timeless uh, understanding of what Buddha is. This mind itself is Buddha. So uh, when I recite, I take refuge in Buddha. This is the main Buddha I take refuge in. (laughs) (laughs) uh, so refuge is a way to to ongoingly practice with this we have these ways to access this this understanding of Buddha and Zazen and the power of Zazen and uh, how to to maintain some continuity take refuge in Buddha Refuge, I think, is this great word because it's like where we. Uh, refuge is like means like a place of safety, like a realm of safety and security. In this English word, refuge, and I think in the Sanskrit, sarana, also, and the Japanese kie means to return to and rely on. So, uh, so we can even ask, for, I think this is the meaning of refuge is what, what do we trust most? What, what, what is like our, uh, the source of um, the deepest security and safety? In Buddha. Like when I'm in trouble, what, where, do I, um, where do I go for safety? When I'm um, doing fine, where do, uh, do I rest in security? When I'm approaching death, where is the stable refuge there? Like if I'm looking for like a, a secure, safe refuge. I want to find um, a refuge that's like not wobbly or shaky like a really um, really reliable, um, unshakable kind of refuge. Um. Buddha um, fits the description. <laughs> 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 this very mind, as we understand it like that, not my conceptual mind, not as Dogin says at the beginning of the essay, people understand the sense. This very mind is beautiful. People think that the thoughts and perceptions of ordinary sentient beings with due to consciousness, uh, Buddhas, but um, they don't seem um, so uh, stable and, and uh, safe and secure. <laughs> Anything that changes is... Um, To understand it as a supreme refuge. Same with the Dharma, um, as the um, the teaching, the, the infallible, unshakable teaching of truth, and reality, and even the Sangha. It's in, in this ultimate unshakable Sangha. you could say we, we take refuge in the Buddha nature of. Community of the Buddha nature of each practitioner. Not too much I take refuge in sangha as like all these annoying people and they like keep changing and they're so unreliable. <laughs> <laughs> that could could be a refuge. That's often how we do talk of refuge, but right? I think that the meaning, especially when you get into the Mahayana descriptions of Buddha Dharma and sangha, it's like it's like the supreme unshakable refuge of Buddha Dhamma and Sangha. And luckily, all of these um, um, annoying and unreliable people have a flawless, um, perfect, uh, unchanging, free Buddha nature. Take refuge in. And even their ma- the manifestation of all of us sentient beings here. Kind of, um, kind of messy and unreliable. Even the messiness and unreliability is a is a pure expression of Buddha nature. It's not. It's a pure the, the confusion and and um, unreliability appears within Buddha nature as Buddha nature. If we can remember that within, especially when we're um, when we're really into the messiness and with other people <laughs> with ourselves, we we don't let ourselves off the hook so easily. With other people, um, we yeah, uh, oh, that's just how your nature is expressing itself. It's really okay. That was the the Buddha's statement. Buddha's lion's roar in the flower ornaments. And say, amazing, amazing how <laughs> I see that all sentient beings are fully endowed with the, the perfect virtues and um, and wisdom, often it's translated. This, this word jnana, you, you could translate it as knowing or awareness also. All beings have this perfect knowing and awareness of the totality. How amazing, and even more amazing, that because of karmic oscillations, they don't recognize it and don't appreciate it. They're both amazing, that we all share this and that we've all forgotten it. <laughs> and that we can remember it, that's also amazing.
2: You mentioned that at the last talk, you know, that, that your mind kind of expands out and you realise that all these sentient beings are in this kind of suffering. Mm-hmm. And if we're seeking refuge in this big mind yeah. and we're confronted with that reality that there's all this suffering in the like how are we just not brought down to our knees by the screams of the world? Like, where is that contradiction
1: yeah it's a tricky one like there's a sangha there's one, of the, one of the Buddha nature, teachers in the ancient idea yeah, uh, saying uh, something like um, something, something like the Bodhisattva's greatest joy is to suffer with all beings, or something like that. <laughs> it's kind of hard to talk about it, but because Bodhisattvas are, are very joyful that they live living this one reality together, and yet they're um, not aloof from it either. They're, they're there with the suffering of all beings. and um, uh, That's been a, a long-term kind of co-on for is trying to understand. The basic question is, do do Bodhisattvas, we're talking like, Bodhisattvas of Great Realization who are abiding in in this verification of Buddha nature, um, like with more and more continuity, um, but they're they're staying in the realm of samsara in order to benefit beings, do these Bodhisattvas suffer or not? I think like in the tradition, you can find things that imply both directions. Uh, Or this kind of statement, like, their greatest joy is their suffering with all beings, for all beings, or something. So, um, maybe we could say, I don't know, like I say, it's almost like a koan. Uh, It's hard for me to understand that that, that fine middle way of, like, Maybe we could say part of um, part of their attention is always on the reality, the ultimate truth of, of big mind, and part of their attention is just attending to the particular difficulties of sentient beings, including their own um, habitual tendencies and so on. And uh, so it's kind of like a, a foot in both worlds, like. Uh, and, and maybe that, that's the middle way of it, and the the middle way is the way it's free from extremes. So one extreme would be to uh, to uh, become a little bit too aloof and you're like, people are really suffering around me, but right it's just like a dream. It's like you know, it's all okay. Like, it's not okay. Yeah, yeah, no,
3: it's okay.
1: And, you know, maybe that's going a little too far. Depending on the situation. But then the other extreme would be like, they say, it's, it's
3: not okay, it's
1: not okay. And then we're kind of like churning around and we're swept into the, the torrent of samsara and we totally lose that, which usually means losing touch completely with the, with the uh, big mind. And that's, I think you might say, isn't that great The Bodhisattva's can suffer like that means? But I think just to be swept along and overwhelmed with, in the torrent with them all, I don't think it's actually really helpful. <laughs> There's some good way that it, it's, it's helpful where we're, really, we're not denying it and we're not um, running away from it. We're not pretending that it's not happening. And yet, we're, um, we're not totally caught by it. You know? I imagine you don't have children, but I
3: imagine that it's... Um, it's like when you're a if you're a parent and you have children who have suffered an accident or something like that, yeah. where you're you're not going to be totally like s- the empathetic response isn't going to be so, so strong that you shut down and mm-hmm. you feel the same, same pain. Mm-hmm. But you feel enough of it that you feel compassion, which is a different feeling from empathy. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. In the brain, it's a different, totally different. You're pathway, right? Mm-hmm. But the feeling of um, care and consideration without being overwhelmed by it. Yeah. It's like, can those things run simultaneously. Yeah.
1: Total care without being overwhelmed by it. That's right to put it. And um, strictly speaking, as I understand, the, the, the Buddhist definition of compassion is... Um, Includes empathy. empathy means like we're, we're resonating with the, uh, the suffering of others. But, uh, as I understand it, really compassion, light, um, karuna, means um, the wish, the wish for others to be free from suffering, the wish for someone or ourselves to be free from suffering. Uh, we're resonating with the suffering and um, we have a strong desire to end. Interestingly, it's compassionate It's kind of like you could say it's a non-acceptance. Sometimes we say, uh, in English, we talk about that etymology of compassion is to suffer with. But that's not exactly what the Buddhist definition. Is. Um, so we wish, we wish it to be relieved, which is kind of like we're not just totally. Um, Calmly, okay. (laughs) We want to relieve it, and and then the the, next, traditionally, um, based on that wish, called compassion, that that wish can give birth to bodhicitta, which is um, the aspiration, uh, a wish to um, realize complete Buddhahood ourselves so that we will have the understanding and skillful means to know how to begin the suffering. Just the compassion without... The compassion, and maybe the Bodhisattva too, is this, the feeling of like, um, like, a, like a mother... Uh, watch it, a mother with no arms watching her child being swept away by river and kind of like wanting like wanting nothing other than to help this child but not having any arms And of so and feeling like I really feel this suffering I don't know what to do I don't know what to do and then the bodhi is like I vow to learn what to do this is how we in the maya understand buddhas always know what to do that's part of it a Buddha is not just perfect wisdom; it's like perfect skillful means. Then immediately can see the suffering and respond appropriately without any doubt. Also, kind of like that image of Kiteshvara's thousand hands with an eye in each hand. Like the thousand hands that respond, but each one has like a wisdom eye. That, um, I know what to do. How could anyone always know what to do? That's the inconceivability of Buddha. <laughs> so, so that's one way of looking at Bodhichitta Isn't that selfish to just want to be a Buddha? The aspiration for enlightenment? But it's always the Bodhicitta, you know, the traditional definition, is the wish to be a Buddha, like to be completely, fully awakened, which includes all the skillful means, in order to be able to help beings most appropriately not just for ourselves you can say not even at all really for it's like it's so, it's such a compassionate wish and feeling so helpless like I really have, have this total compassion but that's not enough I have to get
3: Buddha.
1: Would Buddha's arise due to that condition mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. due to the suffering yeah, yeah Buddha's body sutra yeah who appear in the world due to this one great causal condition of, of um, being suffering, basically, in order to,
2: to free beings, in order to liberate beings and turn to Yeah. Necessity being the mother of invention. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So. What is the term that, where you see the problem in the world that makes you want to do this? compassion? Yeah, but I thought that there was a Buddhist Japanese some term for kinda of that first insight that there's something wrong with the world. Suffering. So, <laughs> dukkha. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, yeah recognizing that there's a problem. Just we're usually dukkha maybe is more like recognizing that our ourself, that we're not satisfied and then seeing that in others also naturally. The first recognize, just seeing suffering I think we could, you might say before compassion comes, first it's just recognizing that there is a lot of suffering in this world and then um, in a way, naturally, everybody has some compassion naturally we might even tell the story that that natural compassion that everyone has to some extent for, at least for somebody <laughs> even, you know, killers have or their dog or something, right? Um, That's because it's a natural quality of Buddha nature. That's that's kind of in the the early teachings of Buddha nature. The way I said it has the characteristics, right? It's like space. And yet, sometimes it's spoken of as having these qualities, Buddha nature, uh, uh, awareness itself, has these inherent innate qualities that, are, that come with it, called love and compassion. And, and that is a little tricky because then it sounds like it's size of it. It's like it's some entity that has love and compassion. But the way I understand it, it's, it's non duality. As we, we talked about this morning, it's like, and it's the realization that others are me separation so another name for that is love love is like is the is the uh, understanding is the maybe it's in the more like emotional realm or um, in the the feeling realm love is non-separation if you love somebody in this pure sense it, it just means like you forget that you're, that you're a separate person. Um, and that's like, again, just like, quality of reality if I'm not separation. It's uncontrived, unconditional love. And, and same with compassion. I think it's like part of myself is suffering, so there's a natural uh, wish to relieve that. Not, like contrived, so in that way we could see how they're not anthropomorphizing, They are just and compassion, natural qualities of boundless, non-separation. So, so once we get to get some taste of this and have some practices, then um, then how amazing! <laughs> you could even <laughs> say like. Uh, um, I think I said earlier in the session, right? Like, we've all we've all made it to Austin's Center like, We've come this far, right? <laughs> so, like, um, let's not blow it now. <laughs> let's, let's, let's not waste time. Let's not. Um, let's use this precious uh, opportunity of this of this particular life where we kind of discovered some medicine, some dharma. To um, uh, let's not just let the medicine sit on a shelf (laughs) and rot. So maintaining, you know, once we, I think there's also just clarifying these teachings again and again, which is nice. We can do discussions We can do dharma study. We can do um, through meditative inquiry in Zazen. We can ask these questions and like, we, was kind of quick this morning, I I'm, I'm even quick this week running through all this stuff. I uh, need All the remaining doubts bring it into our practice and resolve, so that's, I think, part of the ongoing, mm-hmm. we're talking about like, maybe the sudden insight uh, uh, had, has arisen at a particular point of like, wow, I really can, I can start to accept uh, maybe the truest deepest reality is that uh, there isn't any separation between subject and object, between me and you, therefore. You uh, say that's the sudden aspect of the Zen and then the gradual, kind of, kind of comes after that, traditional Buddhism maybe, like, gradual practice and cultivation and me doing a bunch of stuff and then, then there's, a, then there's a, at the end of that there's some moment of and Zen is, of course, there's practice before um, a particular insight, but then after, then there's this gradual, um, you could say, clarification of all the details and doubts. Which I feel like I'm, as the years go by, I feel like I just study Dharma more and more. It's almost like an obsession. Because the, and the doubts get more and more refined. They get very, you know, a lot of the major stuff. It worked too, but, but um, sometimes the doubts are even about how we're languaging, how we're speaking about this, how we're, because we want to be able to talk to other people and say well, like, how to use language accurately and precisely. And so studying time Oh, we got a new yatsu. That's a sweet way to put that. That turns in an way. So clarifying, clarifying, and then deepening. You know um, the verification, making sure that that no even a Buddha can't talk us out of it. and then and then the continuity aspect is like it's not just a matter of once, then like over and over how do we um, that's what 's so great about a Sangha, right thousand the, the schedule Wow, how many people have that? <laughs> so zazen, of course, and sangha People, like-minded practitioners, support all of that. Um, people can talk to you about practice, and uh, so the, um, the continuity. Almost, almost feel like it, that's another thing. I feel like in my experience, the deeper the practice goes, the the, um, the more it confirms itself and. And the more contentment uh, pervades, but also the more I want to practice. I want to practice more than I used to. Isn't that weird? We might take it simple, we can just, we're done, we can stop. Like next week, or a week from now, I'm going into a a month long solitary silent retreat. Just find myself to just steep in this. Practice. Month long session I love doing this It's, been, it's become a, an annual practice thing for me. Because uh, it's like once we see the possibility and then we and then we feel like wow, but I'm actually not like I'm not actually living it so much of the time, I'm so distracted by these habits. Then it's like that kind of Cognitive dissonance or that that feeling like that like almost like the, the responsibility and the feeling of like that feeling I think of like, oh, come this far and life is quickly passing. I could die after next month, so I'm not going to have a month before I die. I could die in the middle of the month, but what a great way to die. <laughs> <laughs> so, all uh, that. <laughs> I'm determined to get through a two page essay. <laughs> 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 and now this this is like my favorite part which actually it begins now. Mm-hmm. Now we start with the next part here. A little less than what we Very beautiful. So see we're about halfway down the two. The mind that has been authentically transmitted is one mind is all things. All things are one mind. So as far as um one, one mind, I think it's the first time we heard this phrase. It's one of these other phrases, one mind, but really talking about it. I think a lot of Zen people still are, I've heard people interpret they don't really mean that there's one mind, it's a sort of a but my understanding is no, we're actually talking about one conscious awareness, not one conceptual consciousness, not one storehouse consciousness, um, our individual memory minds and so on, but one um, source of all those minds, one big mind. And maybe the most um, well known Zen ancient ancestor um, the one mind is Huangbo or Baku, you know, the great uh, ancestors in, in that kind of Linji side of our of our lineage of our documents you know early early Chinese China, says all Buddhas and all deleted sentient beings are only one mind there is no other reality This mind from beginninglessness has never been born and never passed away. It's not blue or yellow or any color. It has no shape and no form. It doesn't belong to existence or non-existence. It's not old or new. It's not long or short, not large or small. It transcends all limiting measurements, all labels, all traces, all oppositions. And yet, this very being is it. When you stir thoughts, you turn away from it. It's like space, which has no boundaries and cannot be measured. This one mind is itself Buddha. Actually, it goes, Matsu, who coined the phrase Matsu, disciple is Baijong, whose disciple is Huangbo. His grandfather was Matsu. As he says now, he just adds in one here. One mind itself is Buddha. <laughs> Buddha and sentient beings are no different. It's just that sentient beings seek externally, grasping appearances, losing the more they seek. If you try to have Buddha seek Buddha, or use mind to grasp mind, you'll never succeed what you don't realize is that if you is if you stop thoughts and illuminations, Buddha spontaneously appears. Mind itself is Buddha. Buddhas are sentient beings. As sentient beings, this mind is not diminished, and as Buddhas, this mind is not increased. So that's all long, well, long book, yeah. He's got a, uh, he's he one of my favorite Chinese ancestors called it, Transmission of Mind by Juan There's a few nice translations. And you know, in this kind of kind of record of Wang he just goes on in the same vein, for just fifty pages or so. He's really um almost doesn't have anything else to say. <laughs> <laughs> so it's one mind. So um and what a great phrase here. Coming from the previous paragraph this mind itself as Buddha has been authentically transmitted until today. The mind that has been authentically transmitted is, one mind is all things, all things are one mind. So Non-duality. So as we said this morning, at first, it seems to us that all things appear to mind. Do with, that's how I do with deep consciousness. Then as we started to investigate the boundlessness of mind, then it, then it seems that all things appear in mind because there is no outside mind. And as we look even closer, any sense of separation about something inside something else um, can dissolve so that in the third uh, deepest phrase, you could say, all things are one mind. All things, all things appear to mind. All things appear in mind. But all things appear as mind. And All things appear as mind is the same as all things are mind. They're manifestations or expressions or the display of awareness. All this that we are experiencing is the display. Of awareness, like a, like a play, like, a, like an art piece. And uh, just to note here, too, that in this model, that we're, this conceptual model we're talking about here, it's interesting that uh, to me it seems like this is a, um, we could call it a manifestation model, as opposed to a receptive model. Often, examining, when we hear about this mind is like just a receptive receptive openness, and anything can appear in it. The mirror metaphor kind of sounds a little bit more receptive. Anything can, can appear on the mirror, and it's held equally, it's received equally. The GGUs, MI, in that, I think, the latest translation of Kaz Tanahashi's. So book ends are already translated as DGU Zama is as receptive samadhi. Um, but but actually GGU D is self and ju. is to receive, but you is to use or employ. So sometimes we say self-receiving and employing samadhi. But ju as a compound, I think in, in Japanese, they don't wouldn't usually break it up. I think although I have seen the Japanese teacher Shihakamokamura kind of validates calling it self-receiving and employing <coughs> samadhi. But my understanding is usually that, that compound jiu-yu is read as um, enjoyment or fulfillment. And just if you split apart the compound, it's literally receiving and employing. But I think more common reading, and I currently understand, would be the self-fulfilling samadhi. It used to be translated that way, self-fulfilling samadhi, yeah, by cause, and, um, or self-enjoyment samadhi. And um, from this Buddha-nature perspective, that's how I have to translate it. Yeah, there it is. To okay. you. Oh, let's see.
0: Is that the right... Something like that?
1: Receive. Um, except without the left la- radical. radical. Oh, without So... Um, there's a left radical that's a hand radical, uh-huh. and that means, I think, to um, confer. Oh, okay. So it's also pronounced Jew, and if, it's this, if you take away that uh, radical, so we say jew kind, and even in... Yes. Yes, you know, that's the Jew that's the of G-U-D-D-U-U like uh, Jukai, sometimes it's translated, and I've seen it like with both characters. Even in the Shoko Genza, or within Soto Zen anyway, sometimes you see it as that which means to receive the precepts, Kai kind means of precepts, and sometimes you see it as um, with that hand radical that means to confer the precepts. I think when they are um, in like the ceremony manual of Soto Zen, Dukai officially I think is the ceremony Conferring the precepts, I'm pretty sure. It's kind of from the teacher's side. The teacher can give the precepts and confers the precepts. Genzo so, Jukai, there's an essay. I think that's the means to receive the precepts. Both are true. I think in Santa Cruz now I uh, translate it as the ceremony of conferring and receiving the precepts. <laughs> <laughs> Cover all the
3: bases. <laughs> Cover all the bases,
1: yeah. The two Jews. So, um, together, self-enjoyment, Samadhi, I, from the Buddhist perspective, I think of this big self, the self that is enjoying itself. It's always enjoying itself. Our big mind is enjoying itself, even when Kokyo is not enjoying himself. His big mind is enjoying itself. And the Samadhi is doing get in touch with the way that the self is enjoying itself, or the self is inherently fulfilled, the self-fulfilling samadhi, or the self-fulfilled samadhi. It's the way that the self, all-inclusive self, is naturally fulfilled because <laughs> there's nothing that it doesn't have.
2: We're talking about the sense of lack of a small mind. What is the difference between samadhi and nirvana? In early Buddhism, it seems like samadhi is, is you know, the
1: meditative um, cultivation of concentration, but literally the definition of samadhi is something like God, the one-pointedness of mind and object, because that's how the mind gets very concentrated. Even if it's like samadhi from following the breath, it's like the mind attending to the breath, and the breath become so um, intimate that, that the mind and object become one pointed at one point. And I think that then in the Mahayana people kind of playfully started understanding well samadhi is like not just a concentration that leads to insight like in the early teachings but samadhi itself this one pointedness or non-duality is the insight so that in the Mahayana they started naming early Buddhism there's only one Samadhi just concentration of mind. in the Mahayana there's all these Samadhis with these fancy names I I have the sense that mostly they're talking about the same they're talking about non-duality what we call the self-enjoyment Samadhi we call it it, actually this is a scriptural confirmation for this point that they're all the same there's an essay called Self-Enjoyment so, Samadhi by Menzan Zenji. It's in this book called Dogen Zen. It's a great essay by Menzan and the Soto Zen, the ancestor in the 1700s. And he says, he's trying to talk to people about people asking about all these different samadhis. And he lists them all and he says they're all the same. And I think the ones he lists are DG, um, Zami, Self, Fulfilling Samadhi. Hokyo Zamai is the Jewel Mirror Samadhi. Um, Zamai O Zamai is the King of Samadhi's Samadhi. It's the name of the Shiboganza chapter. Um, The the, um, Kai In Zamai is the Ocean Seal Samadhi, the Ocean Mudra Samadhi. The um, samadhi of limitless meanings in the Literature the samadhi of viro chama, uh, realizing the whole universe, something like that. And then Menzan says, these are all names for the same thing called just sitting. <laughs> <laughs> and he talks about um, just sitting somewhat like this, kind of human nature perspective, the like great perfect mirror. One mind is all things. All things are one mind. I might even, if I had to take one sentence out of this whole essay to stick in my refrigerator door. <laughs> I might choose that one. The mind that has been authentically transmitted is. One mind is all things. All things are one mind. Thus, an ancient teacher said, if you realize... This mind, there's not an inch of land left on earth. You probably get the feeling for this. Um, Zen talk now. With there's not an inch of actual material stuff left on the earth, right? Not even the smallest bit of any substance left. But of course, there's the appearance. Of lots of land all over the place, but there's not an actual inch of actual, like, you know, rocky soil that really exists externally and substantially and materialistically. That's how I would take it. When you, if you realize this big mind that includes everything, there's not an inch of land left on Earth. We think. That's what's maybe we can say all our thoughts and feelings and like I can see how that's that's just mine, but like the solid earth itself, don't tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there's not an inch of land on the
3: earth. Is that the so in the Dogen verses for the precepts? Mm. There is I think it's yeah. I vow not to be avaricious, is that the one? Inter- so there's not even a bit of earth on the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is isn't there. It's the same line. And it might be
1: a quote from some old Chinese kind of Zen thing. Yeah. yeah, it's the same line. There's not an to inter- earth on the ground. Yeah, it's probably the same line. Some of these phrases, I, I, I don't know where they come from. Or, but it's part of what I love about Zen is sometimes it's so weird. So, is, that a, is that a helpful? You know, is that, a, is, that, a, is, that a, is that a skillful way to talk? But I think maybe for me it's like, maybe like huh? And maybe it's that's maybe that's the point to get into like, <laughs> <kind of> <laughs> so uh, the um, you know that when you realize this mind, the entire sky collapses and the whole earth explodes. Or know that the whole heavens fall and collapse, and the ground is torn apart. Is another translation. So I think again, it's more like the way we usually think of things as solid and fixed. All starts unraveling, even though it still appears the same. Another thought I had recently is that we're talking about the sense of the separate self. This collection of habits and memories and feelings that we that we identify with as ourself. Um, this was a conversation with Cheryl, my wife. I think she came up with this one. She said something. Like, I think it's like our sense of familiarity. So we could say it's almost like a definition of the separate self. You know, like a, like we wake up in the morning and uh, in the same body, right? And we're like, oh yeah, and this is like my sense of life and the same house, right? And, um, I feel like, yeah, this is all, like, pretty familiar, <laughs> and, that, and that's why we take refuge in the small self, it's familiar, right? but that familiarity keeps us, like, maybe like, kind of stuck. So, um, so practices that, that help, um, help make the sky uh, collapse and, the, and the tear the ground apart, <laughs> that explore the earth, like we, or we can't find the ground. This maybe kind of um, helps unravel the, the, the holding to this familiarity of myself. Doing something that we don't usually do, maybe sometimes just helps loosen like, it up. Uh, the uh, or if you realize this mind. The earth raises its surface by three inches. <laughs> Another translation is, the earth grows three inches mm-hmm. thicker. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the, that's I think that the highlight phrase in here where I'm like, huh?
3: <laughs> 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 I don't know about the What he's
1: saying there. It's probably some, um, some old Zen phrase. Or yeah, mm-hmm. if I had to try to interpret it, I would say um, since it's following the previous sentence, uh, where it's talking about the earth kind of um, exploding or torn apart, this is more like just to balance that. The other side is like when we realize this all inclusive mind, the earth becomes even more real in a sense, or more vivid, mm-hmm. even even thicker, mm-hmm. almost like. From the perspective of emptiness, form becomes even more form. Like that. It's not literally that everything goes wishy washy and, and like you, know, you can't tell the floor from the ceiling anymore. It's like it's like the floor is not the floor that it was when it's even more vividly apparent as the floor. We're more present with it. Three so inches thicker. <laughs> ancient masters Yangshan and Guishan said to each other, Actually, these were teacher and student that founded the Guiyang School of Zen, one of the five houses of Zen in China. Guishan asked, what is the wondrous, clear mind? Actually, it's just the, the wondrous, clear, bright, luminous mind. And Yangshan says, I say it's mountains, rivers, and earth. It's the sun, moon, and stars. So, uh, we're down with this, this point. <laughs> and, uh, I like these, when they make identity like that, it is, it's not so much, it's even more non-dual than to say, like, the sun, moon, and stars appear in mind, or the, um, the mountains, rivers, and earth uh, are manifestations of a mind. Saying they're like identical, right? The one that's clear, bright mind is mountains, rivers, and earth. It is sun, moon, and stars. There's no difference now. This is the non-nuality of two truths. The ultimate truth of the empty, all-inclusive suchness of one mind. And all the myriad phenomena, the conventional truth, all the myriad things, these two truths are inseparable. They're one and the same, but from one perspective, we talk about the myriad phenomena, and the other perspective is just one reality. Oh and I forgot, but the point that I was making with G G U I got lost there for like a second. But this gave, this common model of um, uh, Zen, I think, is this receptive, receptive kind of samadhi, and, and it's yeah, I, I like that. But especially Zamaya. I don't know about that choice of changing the translation from self care they don't even put self in there. The current version just this receptive samadhi mm-hmm. in the big shabbat. and uh, I think it's maybe it was trying to be a clear meditation instruction, but right? It's an interpretation um, because um, I'm sure people would argue with me at this, but I'm feeling these days like this model that I've been presenting is not actually exactly a receptive model. Because a receptive model is like there's one mind and all things then come forward and appear in this one mind and and the one mind receives everything that's a valid model in meditation but the quest, it brings up the question of if this one mind is receiving everything where is it coming from mm. all this stuff that's appearing in it right? so um, this, the model I'm presenting and maybe a, people might argue with it because it's, it's, it's so radical in a way is it's a little bit more of a productive model like the, like the uh, I maybe mean, not exactly you or Tijuana, but um, it's a if, instead of receptive, instead of the one mind receiving everything, the one mind is like giving birth to everything, or the one mind is manifesting everything. And so, Golden does like this word manifest or express. It's like um, the one mind is expressing itself or displaying itself as things. So that, you see how that's not exactly receptive? Is it like a creative process? Yes, it's, it's, it sound, seems a little more like a creative process. These are conceptual models, mm-hmm. but they we can meditate on them too, right? And uh, see how it feels in our meditative experience. And um, it's more mysterious, but it's also more non-dual, I think, because the receptive model is still implying that we kind of forget... <laughs> What is this? Where is this stuff coming from that's being received? And then if we start examining that question, well then it must be outside. If it's coming to us, to the big mind, What? it must be coming from outside of it, and then we have duality here. But if it's emerging from within the big mind as big mind, that's not really re- receptive, right? It's almost the opposite. of so everything's coming to it. It's it's Displaying itself, not maybe productive isn't quite right because it's not producing things, but it's manifesting as things. See yeah, the difference? Mm-hmm. Well, you think of it like a, like a, We were talking about the
3: wave earlier, like the wave within the water, mm-hmm. right? It's it's yes. an embodiment of yes. the water. Nice it's example. not separate
1: from
4: water. Yes, well, we
1: definitely say that the ocean doesn't receive waves. That would be a weird way of talking. About. But the ocean manifests ways yeah mm-hmm. so from maybe the Buddha nature perspective it's not exactly a receptive model
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, so even these parts of the Genjo Koan start to come into question like to carry the self forward and um, literally the, the Japanese says to carry the self forward and practice and verify the myriad things is delusion. That's so right, to carry the separate self forward and experience the myriad things or verify them as the vision. The myriad things come forth, I think our translation says, the myriad things come forth and experience themselves is awakening. Um, but in the, you know, there's tokens sort of reversing these compounds. So the word self is a G code there. And uh, so I. I think maybe more likely, common to translate that as um, maybe more, I would guess Dogen's intention might be more like to make a nice reversed pair, to carry the self forward and, and um, you know, confirm the myriad things is delusion, that myriad things come forth and confirm the self is awakening instead of themselves. It's quite a big difference. And I don't even know if you could read the Japanese as, as themselves, but I think it was it's easier maybe to understand that way. Both ways are okay. But right they're a little different feeling. Can you follow that? Yeah. But then, then we have this problem that it's almost like the receptive model again, right? The myriad things come forth to confirm the self. Where do they come forth from? <laughs> We could say the merry things come forth from within the big self and thereby confirm the big self. It like that. There's some juicy lines in the Genghis Khan meditation.
3: Uh, Tokyo?
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't think it, it doesn't seem to be a person, although it includes. Persons, but is it a kind of intelligence? The big mind you're
3: talking about?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't call it a, per- so a person. Um, is more like this um, causal series of body and mind experiences right. called like an individual. And the person, you could say, appears in the big mind. The person is a manifestation of the big mind, you could say. And uh intelligence, I mean, in, in earlier, Shrenica was using that term called spiritual intelligence. So, um... Yes, as me, order. Big mind? Or uh uh-huh.
0: Order and creativity. Well, is it everything?
1: It, it sounds like um, one mind is all things. uh uh-huh. All things. One mind is everything. Everything is one mind. So it's not... um even, that's why I say I wouldn't even maybe use the word productive myself because um, then we're basically talking about it. Then it sounds like a kind of creator god, actually, which is yeah. similar to the, you know some of the Indian versions of Atman, and that you know Atman and the is as like a god, kind of god creator type being. And it's kind of like that, I think. And yet, um, manifestation is a little different than creation. Because the things that are being created are not actual things. They're actually just the awareness itself taking form as uh, the things. Most versions, at least like um, Western versions of God, even the mystics, I don't think would go that far to say that, that all of us are just like the, the illusory display of God. Maybe some might say that. And you, you usually don't hear that, Like, think you no we're real things. And God kind of magically produced these physical entities.
3: Spinoza would say that. He did. Spinoza would say that everything is a reverberation of God. Oh. Mm-hmm. It's a multi-dimensional string that vibrates, and that's what creates the universe. And, the, and the only, that sure is God the
1: manifestations themselves are God I'm
3: not sure about the manifestations themselves or the manifestations of God
1: yeah. Yeah. or are they, the byproducts of the reverberation right right. yeah that's interesting because I think that
3: but it's monistic yeah one substance and it's God yeah, and yeah it's a manifestation of God
1: and in this book Pruning the Bodhi Tree that I mentioned it's about critical Buddhism and all the Japanese Buddhists who are um, criticizing, saying Zen is not Buddhism because it's Buddha nature. Uh, they even about monism a lot. Some people say Buddha nature is a monistic teaching. Maybe I don't even know how to define it. Maybe it is. is it all Early Buddhism is definitely not monistic, but and even. Kajna Paramita to say everything is emptiness even that I wouldn't say it's monistic Buddha nature to Kajna Garba might start to fit into that category and then um, if so as a Buddhist am I willing to be a monist <laughs> 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 I
3: don't I <matter. laughs> not call me that, monist <laughs> monist
1: is like one right mono is like one
0: or oh, I was wondering if this was kind of a pantheistic kind of thing, where
1: pantheistic I think is like multiple um, or, 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 or every no it's like it's like
0: everything is the divinity everything is the divinity yeah Nature. everything is the
1: divinity I think if that's pantheism or um, or what was the other term we were talking about? Earlier? Panpsychism. Panpsychism mm-hmm. is the belief that all, in a, everything has mind, I think, right? Mm-hmm. And I have read an, a, a, a modern article recently of a, a kind of, a you know, um, established Yogacara scholar exploring the possibilities of Yogacara as a type of panpsychism. But uh, I think it was a stretch. I think he was being playful, but I don't think that's what they were saying. Saying that cup, the cup has mind, has some kind of consciousness, that it knows. I don't think there are Buddhists are ever saying this. But, we should, but it's not so far to say, it sounds kind of similar to say, the cup is Buddha nature. It's a manifestation of Buddha nature. It's true nature is Buddha nature. It's, um, it's appearing in awareness, isn't it? So therefore, its nature is awareness. There's no cup other than the awareness. So it is Buddha nature. But if we switch the language slightly and say the cup has Buddha nature, which usually, usually means like a kind of it has it has a kind of awareness, I wouldn't say that. But but this may this way of saying it is Buddha nature is. Um, one way of looking at in Chinese Zen, this whole, this whole discussion started about non sentient beings preaching the Dharma, and the Buddha nature of the non sentient became this issue in Chinese Zen and Chinese Buddhism with great controversy. Of what are you talking about? But uh, this would be one way to look at it is it's not actually panpsychism, it's just saying everything is the display of Dharmakaya yeah it's interesting comparing the, you know Western Eastern who's the established Yogyakarta person ah uh, I can't remember contemporary or? yeah contemporary this article came out in you know, like the last year or two oh, yeah. academic article I can, I'll send it to you yeah i try to remember yeah I can't remember it was interesting they try to like you know cross-reference Western Eastern things. um Thus, Dogen says, thus we know that mind is not as rivers earth. The mind is sun, moon and stars. What is said here is not more not less. Like, it's just straightforward. No other explanation needed. <laughs> At this point, maybe a few days ago, we would have read something that I'd be like, that's crazy talk.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: So, then this is a really beautiful section, this next one. The mountains, rivers, and earth mind. Mountains, rivers, and earth mind. So, um, now we know mountains, rivers, and earth are mind. What we're talking about, like, there's the cup, and then we're saying the cup mind, right? The mind as cup. In, in other ways, the mind as mountains, rivers, and earth is just mountains, rivers, and earth. The cup. As mine, it's just the cup. So I think uh, I hear that as Dogen's driving home this point of non-duality of it. It's not like well somehow. It's kind of maybe related to something we're talking about. Like it's not panpsychism. It's not um, like the cup has some sort of consciousness. It's just the cup, and it's not some some magical like the cup starts radiating light or something. It's this ordinary cup, just as it is. So, that's how I... You see how, how phrasing it like this might be a way of saying don't, don't look for some extra mystical mindness in things. Just things, ordinary things as they are. The mountains, rivers, and earth mind are just the mountains, rivers, and earth. There are no extra waves or spray I don't, I don't think you in this mind, that's not the original. The sun, moon, and stars mind is just the sun, moon, and stars. There's no extra fog or mist. It's very straightforward. The coming and going of birth and death mind is just the coming and going of birth and death. There's no extra delusion or enlightenment. The walls, tiles, and temples mind it's just walls, tiles, and pebbles. There's no extra mud or water. The four great elements in the five skandhas mind are just the four great elements and five skandhas. There's no extra horse or monkey. <laughs> you know, see, when he's adding in the extra, it's usually something related to the previous sentence. Right? So I think this is beautiful poetry here. And p- making this point about ordinariness extraordinary ordinariness. So I'm um, talking about physical things, and now we're going into four great elements, our earth, water, fire, air, that in early Buddhism they say the um, people are made of the, the form of Skanda, and the form of people and the whole earth is just these four elements. It's a way of kind of deconstructing a person into their physical elements. And the five skandhas include their mental elements of like feeling perception from consciousness. So it's, in it's Hinduism, talking about a person. I mean, a, per- a person and their mind is four great elements and five skandhas, And no extra horse or monkey, apparently there's some Chinese phrase that, uh, of the horse will and the monkey mind. Uh, and I can... That's kind of a nice phrase, I keep using some animals, because the horse will, I think of as, like, kind of a stubborn, like a strong horse, as this, like, you will, know, like, yeah, I got to do what I want, get out of my way. It's like, the, the sentient being mind has a ho- stubborn horse will and a confused, scattered monkey mind. Is it? I, I, thought, I thought there was a modern kind of thing to talk about, monkey mind, mm-hmm. but I guess it's an old Chinese you'd see monkeys in India, right? You know, they're just so neurotic. <laughs> <laughs> they're kind of like us. So, um, maybe a nice chance to um, to, uh, to read this passage from Shunyu Suzuki Yoshi uh, from Lada Riso, a chapter called Resuming Big Mind. Maybe a this before, but now in the light of this week, I think this is a nice expression. Suzuki says, When monkey mind is always taking over the activity of big mind, we naturally become a monkey. <laughs> so monkey mind must have its boss, which is big mind. <laughs> it's monkey mind's boss. However, when we practice Zazen, It's not that big mind is actually controlling small mind, but simply that when small mind becomes calm, big mind starts its true activity. Next description. Most of the time in our everyday life, we're involved in the activity of small mind. So that's why we should practice zazen, and be completely involved in resuming big mind. I think he uses that phrase, um in several places resuming big minds and that's where you big minds always there but practically speaking we can resume reason because it's already we've already been here before and we're already in it now but we we'll resume it when small mind becomes calm he says that yeah. so in our practice we rely on something great like refuge rely on something great and we sit in that great space. The pain you have in your legs or some other difficulty is happening in that great space. As long as you don't lose the feeling that you're in the realm of Buddha nature, you can sit even though you have some difficulty. When you want to escape from your difficulty or when you try to improve your practice, you create another problem for yourself. But if you just exist there, then you have a chance to appreciate your surroundings and you can accept yourself completely without changing anything. Big mind doesn't need to change anything. That's our practice. To exist in big mind is an act of faith, here says, which is different from the usual faith of believing in a particular idea or being. It's to believe that something is supporting us and supporting all our activities, including thinking mind and emotional feelings. All these things are supported by something big that has no form or color. It's impossible to know what it is, but something exists there, something that's neither material nor spiritual. Something like that always exists and we exist in that space. That's the feeling of pure being. Oh, that's beautiful, I think. And we really touched on many of those points this week, I think. Where's that from? It's in this in a book called Not Always So, a collection of poems by mm-hmm. Theodore and uh, called Resuming Mid-Mind. So. A four mine, the four great elements and five skandhas mine are just the four great elements and five skandhas. There's no extra horse or a monkey. The chair and the whisk mine is just the chair and the whisk. There's no extra bamboo or wood. So I think he was referring to the Zen ancestors who um, sit in the formal Dharma chair and they hold the fly a whisk, the ceremonial whisk, and it's kind of like. The lineage of Zen ancestors, I think is what that's poetically referring to. But the chair and whisk mind, we might say, that's, um, now that's something special. That's not like just the four elements and five skanda's mind. But the chair and whisk mind is just the chair and whisk, actually. There's no extra bamboo or wood. This being so, Mind itself is Buddha, does not divide mind itself is Buddha. Buddhas do not divide Buddhas. Thus, mind itself is Buddha indicates Buddhas' aspiration, practice, enlightenment, and nirvana. So I think we don't need to explain that mind itself is Buddha. doesn't divide itself, and Buddhas don't divide Buddhas one space never divides itself uh, but this is something new the mind itself is Buddha indicates Buddha's aspiration practice enlightenment and nirvana. in Japanese these terms are hoshin uh, arousing the mind which is kind of abbreviation of bodhicitta arousing but it's short for hotsu uh, bodai shin which it means to um, arouse bodhicitta. They abbreviate that as hoshin. I think I don't know about hoshinji as um, San Francisco Zen centers called hoshinji, and when you say beginner's mind temple, that might be a different. Beginner's, the character for beginner, I'm not sure about that. But there's a hoshinji in Japan um, where it's, it's this character, which doesn't mean beginners, it means like around
3: I wonder why it's that Sh- that's true yeah Shoshin actually it's
1: is beginning so what I imagine what it might be is this, this common term Hoshin arousing the mind but because of the books and my beginner's mind they colloquially call it an English beginner's mind this uh-huh. is somewhat related right it's like it's what it teaches like the, the beginning aspiration for practice yeah, yeah. is that Shoshin uh, yeah,
0: I think that's yeah
1: beginning. Yeah, yeah, searching.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> uh, this other one is like emitting. Hmm. Um, generating or, or or yeah.
1: Giving rise, give, to giving rise to, giving for, bringing, bringing forth, calling for,
2: So shin is mine? Yeah, it's the
1: same mind that we've been talking about. Yeah.
2: And the ocean is arising? Yeah, arousing. um,
1: It's one way to translate it. Bodhicitta is like generate, that would be another way in in English, generate the altruistic uh, aspiration for enlightenment. The aspiration for enlightenment is bodhicitta. Bodhicitta literally means bodhi is like Buddha. So it means bodhi mind, so in the fact they talk about it. ultimate bodhi tita is this awakened mind of Buddha. And relative bodhi is the aspiration to realize ultimate bodhi tita. And so for some reason, all the old tradition has this one term, but usually we're to the aspiration. But uh, in this essay, it's going kind to of play out later. I think that, it's, it's in, that this way it's interpretable because if you abbreviate Hotsubo Dai Shin to just Hokusushin and Hoshin, then um, uh, it's literally generating the mind. And I think Dogen happens to kind of play with that idea instead of, instead of the aspiration for enlightenment, the big mind that have, because it's the same character as Sokushin Mizebutsu, Hoshin. Oshin practices Shugyo. Enlightenment is Bodai, which is the transliteration of Bodhi. And Nirvana is Nehan, which is the transliteration of Niran. So, um, so these are seen as like kind of stages of practice. First is the um, generating the aspiration to realize awakening. And then, based on this aspiration, we start to practice And then, based on practice, there's Bodhi, awakening, and then culminating with nirvana. Nirvana and awakening are almost synonymous. But um, we could hear it as kind of stages of a Buddhist life. Nirvana, there's nirvana um, with remainder, which is like the insight into the unborn the unconstructed is a nirvana spirit. And uh, the experiential verification of the unborn, unconstructed, unmade, unfire. And then um, that's nirvana, which remainder? there, meaning the five scounders of the remainder. <laughs> There's still a body and a mind hanging around this um, realization. And then in, in the old teachings, for one who's realized nirvana deeply and completely and stably at death of the body, there's it's called nirvana without remainder. In other words, there's no longer the five scandas. But nirvana is unborn and undying, so that's eternal in a way. Which is kind of setting, that for one you realize nirvana there, there's no more karma, um, birth, otherwise there's, at death, there's just immediate rebirth, based on previous karma. Like, for a like, uh, like Buddha there's party nirvana, and, you know, complete cessation with no more body and so on. So, it's kind of talking about the sequence here. Aspiration, practice, enlightenment, and nirvana. Those who have not actualized aspiration, practice, enlightenment, and nirvana do not experience mind itself as Buddha. So I think we can keep here this as mind itself as Buddha is always um, the case for all sentient beings, actually. But those who don't even have any aspiration to practice at all wouldn't end up in a place like this, and wouldn't um, wouldn't start thinking in this weird way about big mind and stuff. So they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't experience or appreciate mind itself as we They have it, but they just don't have it. they haven't had a chance to uh, ask these strange questions like, "Is awareness present?" So it's kind I of, think it's praising that the amazing thing, like, even the slightest aspiration, like, I want to really know what's going on in this life. Like, what is all this about? I think even that, just that thought, is already kind of like a, you know, stirrings of an aspiration.
3: to say I vow to become a Buddha for the benefit of all beings, that first thought, but I would call it that's an as- a practice
1: aspiration. It's first, you, you can think of those those first moments that like, turned us towards practice, right? That's, that's great gifts that we look back on, or maybe really something very small sometimes. Just starting to get, get curious. That was at the beginnings. where it ended us up. We're in a <laughs> From Just coming, came from an aspiration, right? And it's like, oh, it was nothing really, but
3: it was something.
1: <laughs> Here we are. How many people in Austin are in a sashimi right now? How many people in the like 7 billion people in the world? How many of them are in a sashimi? No <laughs> what percentage?
2: That's upset. Like, come this far. It's not like wasted. You know. Or they're all here with us. There are, of course, they are here with us.
1: <laughs> but um, as Dogan says, um, if they don't have any an aspiration, they don't experience much. They have it. Uh, so there's something about this. And it doesn't necessarily say you have to have all of them. <coughs> but, w- but maybe all of them is actually one thing. So um, in Shoggenso, uh Gyoji, or Continuous Practice, his essay, Dogen says, On the Great Road of Buddhism and ancestors, there is always unsurpassable practice, continuous and sustained. It forms the circle of the way and is never cut off. Between aspiration, practice, enlightenment, and nirvana, there's not a moment's gap. This is the same four terms here. But between them, there's not a moment's gap. Continuous practice is the circle of the way. This being so, continuous practice is undivided, not forced by you or others. So this is Dogen's way of looking at aspiration, practice, enlightenment, and nirvana. There's not a, a, any gap between them. From the perspective of big mind, timeless big mind, that's displaying itself as what we call sequential time, uh, from its perspective, there's not a gap between aspiration and enlightenment. There's not a gap between Shakyamuni buddha Twenty-five hundred years ago, and us sitting in this room—in terms of time, and uh, and in terms of uh, in terms of the evolution of practice and practice unfolding—it's all happening now. It's always been happening now. There's nothing other than now. In a big timeless now, there's not a gap between these. Those, um, even if you arouse the aspiration for enlightenment and actualize, practice realization for a moment, that is mind itself is Buddha. And so here's the translation. Aspiration, arouse aspiration for enlightenment. That whole phrase is hoshin in the original. So, um, so it might be nice, to, I think this is where Dogen may be playing with this, you could translate it as even if you Arouse the mind and actualize practice verification for a moment. That's mind itself is clear. Instead of saying, arousing the aspiration for enlightenment. You see the difference? Literally, it's just generating the mind. You saying radiating. Radiating the mind and, um, and actualizing that's this term shusho, which means practice verification. If you arouse, we could hear it here. Arouse big mind, generate big mind, and bring forth big mind, and um, actualize practice. That already is practice, right? To arouse or generate big mind, and that practice, as we talked about it earlier is itself verification. Arousing the big mind is practice, and that big mind, arousing the big mind is practice, is verifying, non-conceptually verifying that yes, awareness is present, and then we can go on to verify that we can't find any boundaries, that we can verify that there can't be anything outside of this, and we can verify then that the one mind is all. So, uh, so he's taking this term and it's a list of aspiration, practice, enlightenment, nirvana, but maybe reinterpreting it as just arousing the mind for a moment. It's a Sanskrit like term, kshana, which means like a, a um, they say in the old Indian teachings, in the sound of a finger snap, in that sound there were 65. Kshana. <laughs> moments. Linear Buddhism is like there is no such thing as moments. Actually, but to have a tiny, tiny, indivisible moment. I think he's saying for a very short time, a tiny moment. That is is mind itself as Buddha. And mind itself as Buddha it is timeless. So one moment of confirming it is like eternally. Is it is. We're confirming eternity for one moment. Uh, even if you arouse aspiration for enlightenment, or we can say, even if you arouse the mind and actualize practice realization within the most minute particle, so now this, this Indian term, paramano is the tiniest particle that can't be broken down anymore, which later Buddhists started laughing at that too. There's no thing is particles, actually. But even if it's a practice here, but it's a it's in Japanese it's a particle. It's talking about tiniest time and tiniest space. God itself, his mind itself is Buddha. Even if you arouse the mind and actualize practice verification for innumerable kalpas, that's a very long eons and eons of. That is mind self as Buddha. Even if you arouse the aspiration, arouse the mind and actualize practice verification in a flash of thought, that's the mind self as Buddha. Even if you arouse the mind and actualize practice verification within half a fist, that is mind self as Buddha. It's an those yeah. nice weird Zen terms, but no. Should look in their glossary, it says, Fist is sometimes a, a Zen metaphor for um, like direct understanding. They, 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 somebody asks something, and the Zen teacher just raises their fist. He's kind of nice for them. just this. Right? Um, but in this case, even if you arouse the mind and actualize practice verification within half a fist, in <laughs> other words, like, half-direct understanding. We don't even have full-direct understanding. That is mind itself as Buddha. Those who say that practicing for an eon to become a Buddha is not mind itself as Buddha have not seen, known, and studied mind itself as Buddha. They have not met an authentic teacher who expounds mind itself as Buddha. I think these, these people who um, I'm imagining this is saying it's the, maybe the sudden Zen people I'm imagining we say like you people who still talk in that old Buddhist way that it takes in the old Mahayana teachers they say it actually takes through, from the moment of arousing the aspiration to become a Buddha it takes um, three incalculable eons to come to the fruition of Buddhahood which gets into this teaching of rebirth So that kind of system if you say that there isn't a kind of individual rebirth it's talking about that many lifetimes of evolving practice and um, conduct and verification and all of this it takes a long time but the gradual path because Buddha is so awesome beyond our wildest imagination. Um, but then the sudden Zen school would say, you can realize Buddha right now. <laughs> Some people like thought that was crazy uh, when they first heard it, right? So I'm imagining these are the sudden Zen people who then say, you gradual people who go with these scriptures and say it takes e- an eon or three incalculable eons to become a Buddha that's not mind itself as Buddha, you gradual, long, long practicing people, you don't get mind itself as Buddha. So I think Dogen's saying, those who say that practicing for an eon to become a Buddha is not mind itself as Buddha have not seen, known, studied mind itself as Buddha. In other words, it's okay if it takes three eons. That's what I'm hearing him say. It doesn't matter, he just went through like one moment, one tiny moment, is mind self is Buddha and uh, Kalpa and Eon is mind self is Buddha. There's no difference. So if you want to do the three kalpas thing,
3: feel <laughs> <you're> free. <laughs>
1: and it's, not, it's no less. Um, it's no less valid. It's no less legitimate because each of those moments in these three incalculable Eons oh, it sounds so tiring, doesn't it? M- millions of billions of lifetimes of suffering, <laughs> but you know, getting, getting a little better each time, getting a little clearer each time. Um, each suffering lifetime is mine, itself as Buddha. Dogen's very you know, not like, come on, you graduate people, let's get some around you. He's like, it's all good. With all the Buddha Dharma, it's amazing and anybody who has any aspiration to practice anything is already like, how wonderful. In this world. Dogen says in the, in the, Shubhokinza's his, his early series of Dharma talks, he says, Patro monks today have to arouse great aspiration, at least once. Arousing such an aspiration, means thinking little of your own life, having deep compassion for all sentient beings, and entrusting your bodily life to the Buddha's teaching. If you already have aroused such an aspiration, protect it and don't lose it for a moment, because it's hard to find again. And it's impossible to realize Buddha Dharma without arousing such an aspiration. I think aspiration is amazing yeah. thing. Um, yeah. Did we say in the Sashin admonitions? You know, a time to um, to clarify, deepen, and actualize our ultimate concern, deepest intention. Think we read something like that in the first thousand. So. Um, our ultimate concern is like our deepest. Like, Sachin, practice, is always a time to, like, what's really most important here? You know, what's. And that's kind of like been our aspiration. So it's kind of I really want to remember what's most important. Sachin's great for that. So, uh, lastly, the Buddhas spoken of here are no other than Shakyamuni Buddha. Shakyamuni Buddha is mind itself is Buddha. So now, it's so a little we'll capping off here. It's this particular Buddha of our world system. There many, many Buddhas, but we are Shakyamuni Buddha. Because he's the Buddha who turned... The down the wheel in our world system, in our in our kalpa, we call this the the fortunate kalpa, the fortunate eon, of kalpa, the good eon. That's Shakyamuni Buddha's. It was a long time ago, but we're still in the same kalpa. <laughs> and uh, Shakyamuni Buddha, the other Buddhas, of mind, self is Buddha are Shakyamuni Buddha. Shakyamuni Buddha is mind itself is Buddha. So this big mind we're talking about is Shakyamuni Buddha. When all Buddhas in the past, present, and future are our Buddhas, they unfailingly become Shakyamuni Buddha. This is mind itself is Buddha. This was presented to the assembly of Kanondori Kosho Orenji in Uji County. Yamashiro Province of Japan in the year 1239 and now we did it in the year 2019 and uh, thank you very much, Dogen, energy uh, and thank you very much all of you for any the positive energy and the, um, merit. These days, merit's a hard one to understand. These days I'm, I'm trying to understand merit as open heartedness. They say that to, to be with one of these Indian Buddhist teachings, a Buddha, how does a Buddha come to me? A Buddha is the culmination of um, all these lifetimes of collection accumulating merit we don't use this idea that merit is some sort of spiritual back account or something. <laughs> but merit's defined as of, the result of uh, virtuous activity. So, what is the result of virtuous activity? For me, I'd say it's, it's open heartedness. I feel more open hearted. Practicing, and I think Buddhists need this open heartedness, and then they also need a complete collection of wisdom or non dual realization. They're not doing just the non organization, They also need this complete, the completeness of merit, or kind of like emotional open-heartedness and open to all beings. Is there, you might say it comes with the wisdom, but right? it's talking about these two sides. And then we've done it. I say, whatever's been happening here, I call it virtuous activity. We <laughs> generate a lot of merit, and that kind of, I feel like some open-heartedness. Um, and then this amazing thing that we can give it away as Bodhisattvas, any open-heartedness it doesn't necessarily disappear, but we wish we wish to share this open-heartedness with all beings everywhere. It's called dedicating the merit. We um, imagine, and our mind is very powerful to so we imagine um, spreading this open-heartedness to all beings, especially suffering beings anyone, anywhere who's, who's distressed or in pain or in confusion or homeless, or hungry or destitute or lonely or confused, and uh, even for the, um, the earth itself, which these days is, uh, is trying to support us very generously and uh, taking such good care of her, so uh, may she receive our good hearted it's also and just. I know we're running a little bit late, but uh, do we have four minutes extra to hear a song to close? Yeah. I could. I just thought of this song during session.
3: It's so perfect. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh,
1: this is a group called um, Honey Rain. Is a uh, so. Um, Tibetan Buddhist practitioners they all this Dharma music amazing Dharma music um, I think they're really great. And, and all kinds of uh, Buddhist sutras to music and, and um, Dharma songs you know?
2: and this, it, how, how does it spell how does it spell
1: well if you want to find it like on YouTube Doha songs and Doha songs are like in India they're like um Spontaneous realization songs. They just do good things too. So uh, Doha songs, there's a whole bunch of them, like 50 or so. And um, this one's by Milarepa. Mm-hmm. Milarepa's is one of, the, like, maybe the greatest Tibetan yogi practitioner who sung these spontaneous songs in English too. So. This is his. <laughs> yeah, he lived like, the. I don't know, uh, tenth century or something, or whatever or the Tibetans that he's like, you know, he just lived in caves and sang and spontaneous songs of realization. And this is one of his songs. Is he the green guy? What's that? Is he the green guy? Is he turned guy yeah, because yeah. he he um he he couldn't find enough food except for nettles. Yeah. So he just lived off boiled nettle soup for a while and green nettles, so he turned kind really, of you know, <laughs> He was kind of scary. <laughs>
0: Sure.